0: Turn with me in your copy of of God's word to Mark chapter 8 as we continue to study about our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and his life and ministry among us here on earth as it's presented to us in the gospel of Mark. And um, we're going to find ourselves this morning at what is known as the watershed moment in this story, in this book, in this accounting of the gospel. And so um, this is the climax, if you will, uh, that sort of, Brings to a head all that the book has been, uh, all that the book has been leading to, and and then sets the stage for for all of where the book is going. And so, this is a really important passage of scripture, and we'll try to do it justice and glean some light and some understanding and some truth for, from it together this morning. So, we're going to be in Mark chapter eight. We will begin reading in verse twenty-two, and we will read down through verse thirty-three. Before we do that, let's look to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for this time of worship that we have had together uh, so far already. And we pray now that as a part of that time, uh, as we now turn to your word, uh, your holy and righteous inerrant word as it is before us, Lord, that you would open our eyes and grant us sight to see. And and Lord, that all that we see would, would captivate us and would transform us for your sake and for that of your gospel. Uh, So teach us now as we read. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, Mark chapter 8, beginning in verse 22. It says, Then he came to Bethsaida, and they brought a blind man to him and begged him to touch him. So he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the town. And when he had spit on his eyes and put his hands on him, he asked him if he saw anything. And he looked up and said, I see men like trees walking. And he put hands on his eyes again. His hands on his eyes again, and he made him look up, and he was restored and saw everyone clearly. Then he sent him away to his house, and he said, neither go into the town nor tell anyone in the town. Now Jesus and his disciples went out to the towns of Caesarea Philippi. On the road he asked his disciples, saying to them, who do men say that I am? So they answered, John the Baptist, but some say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter Peter answered and said to him, You are the Christ. Then he strictly warned them that they should not tell anyone about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and to be killed, and after three days to rise again. He spoke this word openly or plainly. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when he had turned around and he looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter saying, Get behind me, Satan. For you are not mindful of the things of God, but of the things of men. So we're at this climax, this moment. And the reason that it is that is because this book, this story, this accounting of what Jesus was doing by coming to earth and dwelling among us as a man and walking and ministering. And, and as it's recorded for us, especially in uh, Peter's account through Mark, so in Mark's accounting of the story, Uh, The whole point, at least, what we have seen over and over and over again, is it has been dealing with the theme or trying to answer the question, who is Jesus? Who is this guy, and what is it that he has come to do? And uh, what we see now is that his disciples have finally been brought to today, have finally been brought to an understanding of who he is. And so there is this remarkable uh, sort of scene. The question, though, is why is there this healing before the scene? Because, uh, you know, it, it seems to be stuck out there a, a little bit out of the way. It doesn't really seem to go. You know, we just read uh, that he, he healed the deaf and um, the deaf man, and, and and then he walks through the events again as he's trying to teach his disciples, and it seems a bit superfluous or a bit redundant to now bring another miraculous healing in the story. I mean, we, we have seen countless, I mean, if, if we were to, begin to examine and go back and recount and think about all of the times when jesus has shown himself to the disciples and has expressed his power to his disciples in these miraculous healings we could spend the entire allotment of our time this morning together by doing just that and so one of the questions that we have to ask is why is this yet another healing given to us in this story and i think the answer is because the healing of the blind man is intended to be a picture It is intended to be an illustration with with direct connections made to what Jesus is about to do with his disciples. So that as we then consider the two accounts together, the healing of the blind man in verses 22 through uh, 26, and then we turn to verses 27 with Jesus' interaction with his disciples and specifically with Peter, we're going to try to make some lines of connection. We're going to try to draw the lines to see how it is this picture of healing blindness in this miraculous healing of the man how that helps us to understand what Jesus was doing and bringing about the climax of understanding that Peter exclaims, you are the Christ. We've seen that they haven't gotten it up to this point, right? They Nobody really has known who Jesus is, but the demons, they seem to have really good theology. They seem to know all too well who Jesus is, but the crowds, the Pharisees, uh, the, the disciples... Nobody else seems to at least fully comprehend or to fully grasp and to fully feel the weight of who he is and what's going on. And so this is going to be a story about blindness. And you'll you'll notice that if you paid attention to the bulletin, you'll see uh, the title of the message is that it is uh, giving sight to the blind or making the blind to see. Um, so so we're going to try to make those parallels. We're going to try to draw. Uh, those lines together between these two stories and then try to learn how one informs the other. So first, let's take the healing then. This is a very unique healing. One of the things, if you notice, just preceding to this in the immediate context, you remember I said, he healed the deaf guy. And we looked at some things there because Jesus, for the first time in his ministry, he does something, some form of touching and feeling, or maybe at least from our perspective, it seems to be you know, an incantation or a ritual in order to heal the guy. And he does the same thing here. He, he comes to the blind man and he takes him aside and then he put his hands on his eyes, you know, and he's, he's touching him and he's leading him away. And he's sort of dealing with him in this very specific way And it. And it does, it mirrors and pushes our minds back to his accounting with the deaf man who he healed by spitting in the mud and putting his fingers in his ears and touching his tongue and all of those things. And, seemed a little bit odd and one of the questions that we had to address and that we're going to do briefly again this morning is why did jesus do that no other time in all of the miraculous healings that we've seen has jesus done any of that stuff because he doesn't have to jesus can heal with a thought jesus can simply think things into being he can speak things into being he he doesn't have to stand back and sort of wave his magic wand because he is the divine creator Because he is the Son of God, because he is God Almighty, fully God in the form of a man. He he, he can speak, he can think, he can point, he can wave a wand if he wants to. But at the end of the day, what what we're forced to realize is that these accountings are different, not because Jesus needs to do them this way, but evidently, as we saw last time, because the recipient needs them. And I'm going to argue that today in this passage, it's not only the blind man, who needs to be dealt with the way Jesus deals with him, and we're going to talk about that. But this accounting, by way of where it is in the context, it's given because it's going to become a picture that's going to help his disciples. I think all of this is given on account of the people, on account of his disciples, on account of the recipients, so that they would know who he is. Jesus is going to answer the question that we've all been asking, that this passage, that this story, that this book has been asking, and Jesus is going to give it to us himself. So this one as with the deaf man, is a very interesting one because of the details of the text. I mean, look, it says he took the blind man by the hand and he led him out of the town. Don't miss, as we saw with the deaf man, Jesus deals differently with every person he deals with. And the answer to to why that is, is because Jesus knows what we need better than we do, and he is always willing to deal with us gently, gently, And firmly, sort of together, to teach us, to lead us, to bring us to where he wants us to be. You know, the interesting thing about the story with the deaf man is the preceding passage is when he tells the Syrophoenician woman, when she comes to him wanting a healing for her daughter, you know, I'm not going to give the crumbs to the dogs or the food from the table to the dogs, you know. Doesn't seem to be dealing very gently with her. And then he turns to the deaf man and he's so gentle. And and he takes him aside, like with this man. He doesn't want to make him a spectacle. Just like the deaf in that day, those who were blind were completely dependent upon other people. They were reduced to the status of beggars. They laid at city gates and they laid in the street. They could not work. They couldn't function very well in society. And so they were totally dependent upon their friends and family to care for them. And they were totally dependent upon the gifts of those that they begged from to to, to receive anything, to make any money, to provide for their family in any way. And so he would have been reduced to a beggar. And I think uh, in in large portion, Jesus takes both the deaf man and this blind man aside. And don't don't miss that. Deals so gently with them because they've been a spectacle their whole life. Everywhere they've been, people look at them. They've always been different. They've always been the center of attention. And Jesus is not going to heal them out in the middle of the crowd, out in the open. He's not going to continue to sort of make them the center of attention and further this gawking at them. He knows exactly what they need in their specific situation. He takes them aside, and he does the healing in private. So he takes the blind man aside, and then he spits on his eyes. This issue of spit again is kind of random. Seems a bit gross to us, but this is the second time we've seen Jesus doing this. He spits on his eyes. He puts his hands on him. He asks him if he sees anything. He puts his hands on him again. He makes him look up to the sky, right? He's dealing gently with him, but he's also not just being gentle. He's being clear. I made a big deal about that thought, so I'm not going to do so much today because we're going to move on. But he, but, he, but he was careful to be clear. Listen, Jesus is not the author of confusion. God does not intend to bring about confusion in our hearts and our lives, especially regarding the gospel. He gave us his word clearly. I mean, think about it. Jesus, God could have given us his word, his will, the gospel, these stories any way that he wanted to. But I think this is the only way that it would have worked, Right. I mean, if it had been stories handed down from one person to the other, I mean, if I started a rumor or if I told something to Jim right here and we've whispered it into people's ears and passed it all around the building, by the time it got to the back, it wouldn't reflect anything of what I actually said to Jim in the very beginning because it would have been relying upon sort of frail, imperfect, sinful, broken humans to... Keep it alive and to keep it going. And Jesus, because of his desire for clarity, he has given us his revealed will, his word. He's given us the truth about the gospel. He's given us everything that we need to know about life and about faith, how to come into a relationship with Jesus and how to be in a in a reconciled state before him. He's given us all of those things and he's given them clearly. How do we know he wants to be clear? Well, with the blind man, again, he speaks to him in a language that he can understand. Why did he do the weird stuff, spitting and putting his hands in the ears of the deaf man and touching his tongue? Why did he touch the man's eyes and spit? And do, Why did he do that? Well, because if you can't hear and if you can't see, then it's not as straightforward as someone just telling you, well, I'm fixing to do this to you. And I think Jesus knew that they needed that assurance and they needed that clarity. Jesus wanted to be clear about what he was going to do for them and how he was going to do it. And so he does whatever he has to do to speak to them in a language that they can understand. He uses sign language. How gracious God is in our weakness, in our imperfections, in our frail state, to deal with us gently, compassionately, and clearly, to teach us the things that we need to know, to teach us ultimately about himself. So he deals gently with the guy. He speaks to him in a language he can understand. And then ultimately he is going He is going to heal the man's blindness. He is going to remove uh, the scales from his eyes, so to speak. The better question, maybe, uh, is not why did he do it in a different way. This is a unique healing and a most peculiar healing story, different than any other that's given anywhere in the Bible, in any of the gospel accounts, because at least on the the surface, at face value of things, it seems to not work. I mean, we have to be honest and say that. Jesus spits and touches his eyes, and then he asks him, can you see anything? We have to assume that Jesus was you know, healing him, bringing about the end. Can you see anything? And the man looks up and he says, well, I mean, I see, but I only see in part. I see men like trees walking. We're not 100% clear about what that would have necessarily meant, but what we do know is that he didn't see clearly. And the reason we know that is because then look what happens in 25. He puts his hands back on him again and he makes him look up again and what does it say? And he was restored and now he sees everything clearly. He sees everything completely. He sees everything fully. So this is a most unique story. I would argue that just as with the interesting details of how he deals with the man and how he performs the healing, how those point to something greater, it's, it's not an inability of Jesus it doesn't mean that he had to do those things but he did it on account of the recipient just like that I think the issue of doing it multiple times is not because Jesus was unable to heal him the first time but it's because of us and because of the man and because of the disciples on account of the recipients he is trying to communicate and teach us something and I think that something is this and this is the first main point of the sermon it requires miraculous intervention for men to see. And then the second, and we're going to get there in just a moment, that miraculous intervention is all of kind of what we've been talking about. Second unto that, though, is that our spiritual sight comes to us in stages. So, so we're going to see that in just a moment. It's not always a one and done. It's not a complete transformation on day one. It comes to us in stages. So we're, we're going to get there. Let me make a few more comments about why he's doing things the way that he's doing on account of the recipients, on account of the disciples. He is doing it for their benefit to teach them something about themselves and something about himself. So he is doing all of this in the way that he's doing it, not only to heal and to deal with the blind man, but to show the disciples their own blindness. Look in verse 27. Look in verse 27. He's immediately going to go to deal with his disciples. It says, now Jesus and his disciples, they went out to the towns of Caesarea Philippi. And on the road, here comes the question. Who do men say that I am? So they answered and they said John the Baptist. Some say Elijah and others, one of the prophets. But then he he, he focuses it down even further for them. What is he trying to get them to see? It doesn't really matter what everybody else says. And it doesn't really matter... In a general sense, he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Do you see that although the disciples had been with him day after day after day, they had been on the boat when he stilled the sea with simply his voice. They had been on the boat when he left the shore and walked on water out to them. When he passed them by and gave them a glimpse of his glory, they were with Jesus and he used them in a participatory sort of role to feed The 5,000, which was probably 10 to 12 or 15,000. And then again to feed the 4,000. I mean, just think about all of the things that the disciples have seen Jesus do. But what did it say about the disciples in the passage just before the one we read today? Verse 21, he says to them, How is it that you still do not see? How is it that you still do not understand? Do you see what he was saying? That the disciples have been with me. They have seen me day in and day out. They have gained all of this certain knowledge about who I am and what I can do and what my works are. Yet they are still blind. And like the blind man, their spiritual blindness is not going to be healed by further information. When the the Pharisees came to him seeking a sign... Gaining more knowledge, if, they, if he'll just do something, then we'll believe in who he is. What does he say? There will be no sign given to this generation. Why? Because gaining knowledge is not going to open their eyes. They, they see him. They, they know about him. They have gained information about him. They just don't really see him. And so we can, we can gain an understanding of context, a very important point here, that as the blind man in the miraculous healing is blind and is in need of a miraculous intervention, a divine intervention in order to remove the scales, he then points to the reality in verses 27 through 29 as he asks his disciples in the context, but who do you say that I am? Do you yet see? I know you've seen me, but do you yet understand? And he's helping them to see that they also are blinded Spiritually speaking, and in need of a miraculous intervention to remove the scales of their their blinded eyes, we can also understand then, he is teaching them that this is a universal reality. That there's a blind man, that there are these blind disciples, and if the disciples who walked and talked with Jesus day in and day out and experienced him in a way that none of us ever have and none of us ever will, if they are all blinded, then so too are we. That this is the universal estate of man, that apart From divine intervention, apart from God Almighty doing something to open our blinded eyes, we will always see and yet never see. We will always hear and never understand. We will always experience and gain knowledge, but it will never move beyond here. It will make no difference because we still just won't get it. This is a great reality. (laughs) I'm not sure if we believe this. That, it's, that, that spiritual blindedness is a universal reality. I mean, do we really believe that? What, what would it mean if we really believed that? Well, I think on the one hand, it would be a great encouragement to us. You know why? Because what it would mean is that nobody is any more worthy of grace and of the gospel and of a relationship with Christ than anybody else. It's very equitable. You're just as blinded as I am or you, ju- you were just as blinded as I am. And it's not because you somehow attained to a, a specific lofty understanding of the gospel and of the scriptures and of Jesus. You were given that understanding by miraculous intervention. Someone did something to you that you could not do for yourself. And by the same token, I need someone to do for me what I could not do for myself. One of the applications of that is then that we have to be patient And we have to be humble in our dealings with other people. It helps us not to look down our noses at those that are still spiritually blinded. Because we remember that we too were once spiritually blind. And we understand that it's not because we somehow gained spiritual sight. Or that we somehow worked and were good enough and pulled ourselves up by our bootstraps. And became able to see. But we remember this miraculous intervention, we remember the day that we were captivated by grace and that Jesus gave us eyes to see and, and the day that Jesus gave us ears to hear. And so we go, we go to those who are deaf and we go to those who are blind and we bring them this good news about the gospel that, no, you're not worthy. And, yes, you are blind. And, no, you're, you're never going to be good enough and you're never going to be able to fix it. But the good news is I was not good enough to fix it and somebody fixed it for me. So, So it's very equitable and it helps us to have a right perception of the lost. It helps us to have a right perception of those around us, whether it's in the church or outside of the walls of the church. Finally, by way of just just before we move on to the next point, I think it's important that we consider, as I've already alluded to, precisely what it is that they were blind to. Because the blind man was physically handicapped and unable to sort of see, you know, to to see. So it was plain vision that he's speaking of. But if that's to be a picture of the blindness of the disciples, they could see physically. So what exactly and precisely was it that Jesus is teaching them that they don't understand? And I showed it to you. He asked them, who do you say that I am? Who do men say that I am? What do you think about me? He is trying to help them see that their spiritual blindness is what's preventing them from understanding who he is so that it's a specific interest in a knowledge about the person and work of Jesus so that they would go from seeing him to really seeing him from hearing him to really hearing him and understanding. He's not going to give them any new information. They've gotten all they need. He is going to miraculously work in their lives as we need him to do in ours and open their eyes to see and understand for the first time who he actually is. Secondly, Not only does it require this miraculous intervention, but as I alluded to just a moment ago, this is a unique story because of its at least seeming to not work. And I think that that helps us to understand that our spiritual sight, this miraculous divine work of God to us, for us, that it comes to us in stages. I think so many Christians get trapped and fall under the weight of, depression and struggle with am I saved do I know the Lord am I walking with him because because we think about you know Paul's conversion experience on the Damascus road where one minute he's pursuing Christians for their lives and you know killing them and persecuting them and in the blink of an eye God strikes him down and recreates him anew and renames him and all of a sudden he sort of seems to be 180 degrees going the other way and is a totally different person and listen, listen, there is a sense in which that is always true for unbelievers that come to know Christ. That, that we are instantly recreated in him. That from a spiritual perspective, our standing before God, we are no more or less righteous the day of our conversion. When we express faith in Christ, when we understand the gospel and our need for redemption, there, we're, we're just as justified and reconciled with God that moment as we ever will be. But listen there's another example, there's another pattern of sanctification and of the process of becoming like Christ in our relationship with him than just Paul's. Coincidentally, as we're reading Mark's gospel, it's the pattern of Peter. Let me ask you, you we, we've been seeing Peter and, and his buddies, the disciples, haven't we? For eight chapters. Since June, we've been reading about Peter and their dealings with Jesus. When he walked along their their roads and along the side of the sea, and he called them from their boats to put down their nets, and they gave up everything that they had, and they followed him, which is pretty incredible. But then we've seen them not getting it time and time and time again and falling far short of what they should be time and time and time again. So much so that look at even the context today. Peter makes in verse 30, I mean in verse 29, this unbelievable declaration of understanding to him, to himself, to Christ, to the disciples, that you are the Christ. And it's sort of like, whew, man, Peter finally gets it. You know, he's finally there. Well, and then four verses later, you know, three verses later, what does he do? He pulls Jesus aside to rebuke him. (laughs) Peter took him aside in verse 32, it says, and began to rebuke him. And then he gets the response from Jesus, get behind me, Satan. So so I would ask you this. Peter's not quite making the sort of turnaround, the instant change completely in his life like Paul did. When did Peter become a believer? We don't know. Peter was converted at some point in his walk with Jesus at some point on that road, as he followed Christ, as he responded to the calls of Christ, there's this process. And there are these stages, these stages of spiritual sight where God is at work in us, transforming us and molding us and shaping us. As we are responsive to his leading to his nudging and his calling. It's a process for most of us. It's a process. So so in the one sense, it's definitive, you know. Uh, the, the, the famous language there, that though I am not what I ought to be, I praise God that I'm not what I used to be. But that's both and, isn't it? Yes, I'm different, but man, have I got a long way to go. My eyes have been opened, but there are still so many ways in which I don't see clearly. This man in this text, the miraculous healing that gives us the picture of this, Jesus puts his hands on him. He begins the healing process. He asks him what he sees. And listen, something don't miss us here. The man has the willingness to admit that he still doesn't see clearly. The guy went from totally blind to seeing, but it wasn't good. And he could have just told Jesus, oh, that's great. That's wonderful. I've got it all in control. That's it. You've done all I need you to do. But he was willing to look at you and say, no, I'm not quite there. I'm not quite there. And I'm not really satisfied with the sight that you've given me. Not in a disrespectful way, but I'm not there. And so Jesus returns and continues the process of working on the man. And he helps us to see that as with the sight of the blind man, as with the experience of Peter and the disciples who have taken so long to understand and immediately fall on their face, it is true with us that, yes, he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it, but it is sometimes a long and arduous work and process. This is a great truth. And please don't misunderstand me. I do not intend to demean our responsibility or our culpability for our sins. I'm not saying that, you know, it doesn't matter how we live because it's a process. You don't understand the gospel if that's your mentality. That's not my point. But my point is in in pastoral ministry, so many people, you know, they come to me wondering if they're saved and have I lost my relationship with the Lord because they feel the weight of condemnation of the law. But guys, let us also hear and feel the promises of the cross of Christ. This pattern and this story and this reality, it encourages us to live in that tension. And also to be patient with others that are living in that tension. So that when we look around at Christians, people in our churches, people in our families, people in this context, we don't think, oh... I'm way more sanctified than they are. They just don't get it. Why? Because we all understand that it's a process. And, and that if we were all to be honest about our own hearts and our own lives, we would be willing to find an abundance of areas where the process is not yet complete. So the blindness, in one way to put it, is so deep. The depth of the blindness is so severe that it takes more than one touch by Jesus to fix it, to clear it up. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones was preaching about this. He's, he's one of my favorite old preachers, and he was preaching about this text and this passage. And it's uh, it's a sermon titled, uh, I think, Men Walking Like Trees, something to that effect. And uh, he, he began to, to speak about all of those people in pastoral ministry that are constantly worried about themselves and their salvation and their sanctification, and they're constantly beating themselves up. And, you know, is God really at work in me if I continue to, you know, have issues and I'm on, on the plane of this process and listen to his words? I love it. He's so simple and so direct. Dr. Lowe Jones, his, his encouragement to them in that sermon is stop contemplating your navel and answer Jesus's question. Stop looking here and answer Jesus's question. And the question he was alluding to was the one when he asked him, can you see? What do you see? Verse 23, and he asked him after he put his hands on him, do you see anything? And, and he's pointing to the fact that the man's willing to be dissatisfied enough. He is willing to admit that his sight is still not right. That he, he's willing to say to Jesus, I know that it's not yet there, but I know that you can get it there. See, see, in our own hearts, in our own lives, we are not willing to admit, are we, that we're just not there and that we're still desperately in need of the gospel. And so he says, stop looking at your navel and simply answer Jesus's question. His encouragement is, for if you had not already, if God had not already loved you and revealed himself to you and been at work in you, then you would be wholly incapable of even having the desire for your sight to be better. Do you see that? So the simple reality that we are longing for the sight to be clear, that we want to be better, that we want the process to continue, and that we are pleading with Christ to continue that process in us, it shows and it proves and it encourages our hearts that we are a part of the process and that we are on the train so to speak that we are headed in the right direction and that the process is having its work in us so it requires miraculous intervention for men to see secondly spiritual sight comes to us in stages and that's a great encouraging reality and one that i think is crucially important for us to remember but then thirdly and finally and this is going to be more direct with with christ's feeling with peter if we are to see and understand the blessings of christ it will only be as we see them through the cross look at what happens He says to them, who do you say that I am? He's not interested in uh, sort of the general knowledge. He's interested in their personal understanding of seeing him and opening their eyes to the reality of who he is. And Peter says, you are the Christ. But then there's this peculiar language, and we've seen this time and time and time again. Peter makes this astounding confession, and Jesus tells him, that's great. Now don't go tell anybody. He says in verse 30, then he strictly warned them. Not to tell anyone about him. We've seen, I think there's like 17 times prior to this that we've seen this, 16 or 17, somewhere right in that area, where we've seen Jesus do these unbelievable, miraculous things to heal the broken, to restore, you know, what has been marred, to to redeem what has been lost. And in the context of those miraculous events, he is always telling them, and by the way, don't, don't don't go tell anybody. Don't tell anybody who I am. And this is pretty peculiar. We, I have given you one, I think, and, and part of why he does that. One answer is because Jesus knew and understood God's timetable for his life and that the time of the cross was not yet, that his work was not complete. And if Peter and his disciples and the people went around making an accurate proclamation about his divinity, about his messiahship, about who he actually was, then it would bring more heat upon him and the cross might... It it, it would conflict the plans that God had for him. And so he's living sort of intentionally and responsibly in God's will for his life. I think that's one answer. But Alistair Begg, who I love, he helps us to see yet another part of this. And it is because he says that he tells Peter, at least in part, not to go and tell anybody, because Peter still does not have a full understanding. He only gets part of it. He only gets part of it. And he gets that from verses 31 through 33. Because Peter, immediately after understanding that he is the Christ, Jesus tells him, you know, the Son of Man must suffer many things, that I am the King, but I have come to be rejected and to be killed, but I will raise, you know, I will rise again. And then in 32, Peter takes him aside and begins to rebuke him. Peter was really interested in a Messiah. But, you know, like from Isaiah chapter 9, where we read, the government will be upon his shoulders. Peter, Peter wanted the government to be on his shoulders, the ruling and conquering king. He did not want him to be carrying a cross on his shoulders. We don't always have a problem with the Messiah. As long as the Messiah comes and affirms what we believe to be true about ourselves. And at least in our context of current Christianity, let me ask you this. Is the messy truth about the cross, the blood atoning sacrifice that is necessary for our being reconciled with God, for the the putting away and the setting aside of our sins, is, is the messy, gruesome message of the cross, is that central to our Christianity? Is it central to our claims of Christ and to the gospel? I'm afraid the sad answer to that is most of the time, no. We we preach a Jesus that um, is a savior and, and, and is a buddy and, and, and comes alongside of us to be a helper, not a redeemer. We, we want someone to sort of give us what we need to fix our marriage and, and to give us what we need to sort of, Be a better person or to be a better parent or to have better relationships or to give us just a little bit of what we need. Because what we really believe deep down inside is that we are pretty good and that if he'll just give us just a little bit more, then then it'll push us over the edge of goodness and righteousness and we'll get there. The reason we don't like the cross and the reason Peter did not understand it, did not like the cross, is because the cross is the single element of the gospel that forces us to realize our own insufficiency and inability and depravity. The cross is only necessary if we are totally wicked and totally unable to save ourselves. If what we need is a helper to just come alongside and encourage the goodness inside of us, then you don't need a cross. But if there is no goodness in you, what you need is an atoning sacrifice, someone to shed blood for your sins. Do you see the difference? And Peter, though he understood that he was the Messiah, though he understood that he was the Christ, I think Alistair Begg is right when he points out that he was not yet all the way there. And he even goes so far as to say this, speaking of the devil, the evil one himself is happy to champion messiahs and gurus and avatars. He is happy to suggest that if we could all get together and rejoice in the company of one another, that this would be fine. But the one thing that the evil one is vehemently and totally opposed to is a Messiah who dies on a cross and rises from the dead. I mean, to me as a pastor, what a grave warning. And to my brothers who stand in pulpits all across the coast and around the world today, what a warning. What a warning from Dr. Beg! there. What a warning from the scripture there that if the messy nature of the cross is not central to your teaching about the gospel, then it is not the gospel. And that Jesus is not the Messiah that does anything in the hearts of people unless it is through the cross. You know, this guy had to rely upon his friends, didn't he? To, to, to bring him to Jesus. He could not see. He was totally dependent. You know, if we're not even willing a lot of the time to include our friends in our own inability to admit to them that we have problems and admit our need to them, how are we ever going to be willing to admit before a holy God that there is nothing in us of any value? See, we don't like the cross. We we all want a Messiah. We all want a ruler. We all want a king. But we don't want him to go through the cross. Because the cross, the cross says something terrible about us. It says that we're. It says that we'll never get there on our own, and that we need Him to live the life that we could not, and then to pay the penalty that we should. Because apart from that, there would be no, there would be no sight, there would be no salvation, there would be no redemption. First Corinthians chapter two and verse fourteen. Uh, I'm, I'm going to close with this, but. The, a reference here to, to spiritual blindness. Notice this the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them, for they are spiritually discerned. Also, if you consider Matthew's account of this very same passage, he goes on to say that these things, he tells Peter, were not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. What's what's the point, guys? What's the point? We can only see and hear and know Jesus and our need for him if God gives it to us. It comes in a process. But let us plead with Christ today to open our blinded eyes that we would stand in the shining glory of the gospel. That we would see Jesus. And then that we would believe in him and be transformed by what we see. Let's pray. Father, thank you uh, for Peter's confession that you are the Christ. but Lord, thank you that in this story and in this passage that you teach us about our own spiritual blindness. And that like the disciples, it is a process. And so, Lord, we pray that um, we would all be found to be believing and trusting in you with all of our hearts. Lord, not because we somehow are pursuing you, for you did not come to point us to God. You came to bring God to us. And so, so Lord, we pray that you would open our eyes, that, that you would intervene in our lives, that you would give us sight to see you, to understand the gospel, and to understand our need for you. Lord, captivate us and bind us with your grace. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.